Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Okay, in meditation, we become familiar with our bodies, the various bodily sensations that we might ordinarily not notice. We sit on the cushion or in a chair and we practice being aware of our bodies. How do they hold back? How do they seize up when certain emotions or thoughts come up? What does it feel like when our body is relaxed? And what is the eventual effect of all this noticing on our categorical notions of our bodies, including, among them, gender. Well, that is the topic of today's talk, conversation, really, with Bill Auerbach and Yuna Chung, the dueling doctors, right? Dr. Auerbach, PhD, he's a psychologist, psychoanalyst in private practice. Uh, He's also an assistant clinical professor of psychology at New York University. Dr. Yuna Chung, PhD, teaches literature, film, new media, and critical theory at Sarah Lawrence College. They are both leading a discussion about what Buddhism has to say about our experiences of gender and sexuality. If you enjoy the Meditation in the City podcast, check out the Meditation in the City retreat. Seven days of mindfulness meditation taking place right here in the heart of Manhattan at the Shamala Meditation Center of New York. This is a week-long retreat being led by Shastri Nick Kranz from August 17th to the 24th. Spaces are still available for the full week, or you can register just for the first weekend or by the day. Make it work for your schedule. For more information and to register, go to ny.shambhala.org. Click the link on the homepage for Meditation in the City Retreat. Okay, and here is our talk recorded a few weeks ago with doctors Yuna Chung and Bill Auerbach. And a quick note, there are references to a video that was shown right at the beginning of the talk. We did not include the video in the podcast, but there is a link to the video on our show page on the website and in the uh, episode description, so you can check it out for yourself. Okay, here is Yuna Chung and Bill Auerbach. We often think about our bodies as... um our sexual orientation, our gender, um, the fact that what's sometimes called the sexed body, that is when someone looks at you when you're born and says, oh, you're a girl or you're a boy, or we don't know what exactly sex your child is. We sort of ambiguous, it's intersexed. Um, That um, these kinds of things that we take as givens we, when we think in terms of like, what is the body? What is the ideal? You know, who are you? Are you gay? Are you lesbian? Are you bisexual? Are you this? Are you that? Um, those kinds of questions, while they carry some information to us, it misses other things. And I think that this idea, which Judith put forth, of uh, of gender as being performative and and that she's interested in what does the body do? What, do? what do we do with our bodies? And how varied actually it is. And once you start to think about things like sexuality, gender, you start to open up all sorts of other possibilities. So, yeah. Yeah. 
And the curiosity expressed in that question, what can a body do? And how different that is from asking, what should this body look like or be like or walk like? Mm -hmm. You know, this question about what can it do, I think is really relevant for this practice of meditation. And that it's interesting when we uh, sit, we're really working with the body. And partly, for, so for those of you who've been meditating for a while and those of you who are just getting started, um, there's, a, there'll be, there's a lot of instruction in meditation around working with thoughts and feelings and sensations that come from the body. And that's an interesting place where we actually work with where the social repression works in us. Right? We often struggle with it in our external world, but also we internalize it. And the way in which we take our posture or work with our experiences, it's really a place where you can notice um, how much prohibition right, comes out or how much instinct to for force yourself to do one thing or another or to want to correct and there's a lot of these places where it's an opportunity to explore in ourselves where we could actually just be more curious about mm -hmm. experience. And it's, I think, how we develop that basic ground yes. to really accommodate and accept human experience beyond these kind of very narrow categories that um, are quite life-threatening. Yeah, it's amazing how what happens when you start to attend to your body sensations. Mm. Um, there are <clears throat> meditations on the body where you attend to your sensation, positive, neutral, or uncomfortable, uh, from head to toe. You go down each part of the body. It's very nice for people who have pain, for example. <clears throat> it can be done laying down if you have a back problem. You're in the midst of it. And, uh, but one of the things that we know for, as psychologists is that people who can attend to their bodies in terms of sensations, right, um, are much more understanding of their own emotions and feelings and the subtleties of them. So that even uh, the process of knowing who and what you are is so enhanced by this ability to pay attention to the sensations. and. Uh, and it, it carries so much off of the cushion. Right? Yeah. Profoundly so, I think, yeah. <clears throat> it's, it's amazing how, um, how much fear of our own bodies we carry in us. Right. You know, in small, anxious gestures, in all kinds of tensions. Um, and it's almost funny at first to think that you would sit not move, not use your body, and somehow that actually gives you a way to connect more deeply mm -hmm. to the body. Yeah, yeah. Um. One of the things I think that, uh, the ways in which I think queer theory is really interesting is that it really begins as a criticism of, um, conventional understandings about gender and sexuality. And of course, this has changed so much in the last 20 years, and in part by, uh, spurred by Judith's book, uh, Gender Trouble, 
was really one of the sort of key moments actually in um, at least academically, people really rethinking and questioning uh, the received wisdom of like 25 centuries, at least it seemed in the West, uh, about gender, which is you're male or you're female. It's a binary. It's a given. It's a part of nature. And if you're not, and if you're not really heterosexual also, then in fact you are unnatural. You are imperfect. You are flawed. You are as Sonara was describing in some ways, not really belonging to the order of things as people understand it should be. Uh, so you have this, and, and an interesting thing happens then is not only do people think of themselves in these very binary terms like I'm good, I'm bad, or uh, I'm a freak, or I'm, nor I'm normal, you know, or uh, I'm, I'm uh, deformed somehow internally, uh, you know, or I'm perfect, <laughs> you know, I'm entitled to all the goods of things. Um, not only does that happen, but then socially we police ourselves. So, for example, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s, so it was very, and in the suburbs of New York, it was very tight gender scripts. I mean, it was all about sports, where I grew up, it was all about the way you held your books, the way you talked. There's just a kind of whole macho thing that you really were expected to do, or you could be called a fag or a queer. And even when you're too young to understand what that even means, but you know it's really bad, and you know you're like a major, major loser at that point. And so these kinds of binaries, right, about male and female being a natural part of existence is really where we began, uh, let's say before 2000 in some ways, or for people who were not thinking in these terms. But once you bring in a notion of gender as performative or as constructed, as, as you were saying, that it comes together from lots of bits and pieces, things like chromosomes, things like hormones, things like gender scripts, things like learning. I like this, I don't like that. I've, someone messed with me this way, I don't like it this way, but I like it that way, um, and so on. Um, values, um, all these things kind of start to get folded in together in terms of our inner understanding of what it means to be gendered might be a, feel like a boy today. You might feel like a girl another day. You might feel like something that's not really described aptly by boy or girl. And so this kind of performative quality has a way of sweeping away a lot of the, that, those kinds of, uh, dis, um, I guess what you could say is a kind of a oppressive situation, uh, which continues to be very active and important, you know, in terms of aggression in the soci our society and prejudice and violence. I think the most commonly, uh, the most common assaults uh, to minorities is in fact, I think, transgendered people are the most commonly so in the United States. So, um, so it really starts this notion that we could think of gender in terms of action, in terms of our capacities, these assemblage of capacities, uh, I think sort of opens up something new to us. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, it's funny to think back to Judith Butler's writing in the 90s, mm -hmm. and 
it seems so immediately very liberating to be able to think about gender as something that is produced through our actions and behaviors, that it's not just there for you to figure out how to fit into. And yet it was often really threatening, and I think she was misunderstood for a while as saying, well, there's no real body anymore. And she got into a little bit of trouble because people interpreted her as saying, well, the body maybe doesn't matter. You just sort of make it up in your head. And I think this is also a kind of misperception about meditation sometimes that, oh, well, we're sitting because the body doesn't matter, or we're labeling our thinking because the thoughts don't matter, and we're not going to follow our emotions because emotions don't matter. So then after gender trouble, she had to write bodies that matter to make it really clear (laughs) that bodies matter. And the whole idea of liberating ourselves from really constrictive, binary, um, kind of normative notions of gender has to do with freeing us into a much bigger, wider, unknown, maybe terrifyingly unknown experience of what bodies can do. And meditation, too, can do that by maybe interrupting our habits and our um, kind of brainwashing sometimes or our really rigid notions of ourselves by letting that go the space that begins to appear can be really terrifying. And I think that that's an interesting also connection between our practice and, this, and queer theory. It's right. really provocative. That really is an interesting point because people, uh, when they're meditating, particularly for longer periods of time, sometimes will experience a deep anxiety. Uh, there's a feeling sometimes that you might be go- going to pieces. And uh, you know, often the instruction there is to try to sit with that and see what happens. And sometimes one can, and sometimes one really begins to panic and needs to take a break. It's good to take a break then. Um, be sort of be aware and uh, honest with yourself about not hurting yourself on the cushion. Um, but this experience of of kind of anxiety uh, and maybe like a queer panic, a gay panic, homosexual panic. It's an interesting one. I never thought about them at the same point. But there is a sense that somehow what people are in their aggression towards sort of policing one another may have a lot to do with the fear that they person people may not know exactly who they are, but they think they do. They've been acting like they do, but they kind of know don't really. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just going to add about the fear that you know you were saying earlier um, that once you know when you have an experience of actually something that is coming from your own body and really in your own experience, there's a there's a kind of unquestionable quality to that. Sure, you might spend a lot of time talking yourself out of things, other people might talk you out of, your, out of a lot of things, and there might be all kind of masks we put on at various points, but fundamentally there's something really trustworthy about what you know. Mm-hmm. Um, even as a child, there might be all kinds of you know, reasons of safety to hide, but one knows. And I think that's also something one learns in meditation. You, try, you kind of figure out 
Where is that trustworthy part of ourselves? And what do you know that um, is not a matter of thinking, right? It's not the matter of a correct or wrong uh, idea because it's from the ground of your experience. And developing the confidence or the space to really nurture that is so much a part of this path yeah. and has been a part of the social politics that Sunara and Judith Butler, mm -hmm. I think, are talking about. Right, right. Yeah, I know um, when one is confused about where one is at emotionally on a topic, a dilemma comes up that feels just too, uh, too much in a way, too confusing. Um, Oftentimes, for myself and when I, I, I work with other people, I, I suggest that you just listen to your body. And the answer might be, well, I, I certainly, it's not telling me anything. But what I find is that if you keep coming back to that, clarity begins to really arise. That where there's been a major conflict, a major confusion, simply by attending to your body's senses and feelings, that over time, and this may not work for everyone, but certainly has worked for me and for other, many people I know, that clarity begins to happen in the same way that you might uh, focus a, manually a camera, bringing a lens into, into focus. Um, and so there is that, that. And then there's this also other interesting moment, which is things that don't fit into categories, you know? We uh, are offered these ca categories, these binaries. We're not really even offered to them. We're born into them, and we're expected to adapt to them, actually. Um, and yet, we may have experiences that don't really fit, um, things we just don't buy. Um, I had a friend who was uh, talked about how the boys in the family were uh, always favored. and. Uh, how one of the boys, they were at a construction site for a suburban house and they had cleared out a, a basement. So when she was about six or seven, her boy cousin, who she thought was very spoiled, was sort of giving her a hard time, so she just pushed them into the pit. <laughs> and she kind of, I think, was sort of saying, you know, don't mess with me, you know. And, and I, but I think that was a place of not knowing. She was like, am I a boy or am I a girl? Like doing this stuff, like kicking this, you know, giving, you know, hurting this boy. Um, and showing this dominance, this domination of this boy, physical domination. Um, but there are, are many experiences, uh, not so dramatic, or where our, we're not quite sure where we are. And I, I think that one of the things here is we could be respectful of that and inquire into that and just allow that awareness to arise without having to necessarily come to some early closure about what it means or uh, feel like we have to disown that. Uh, yeah. In, um, in my classroom experiences, uh, there's often an expectation that we're all trying to figure out what's the right category and the right words to mm -hmm. use. And students often come with this anxiety that, oh, this is a class on gender and sexuality. I'm going to leave knowing what to say in every situation that's correct. And there's a sense of wanting to correct things. And it's often quite 
not appreciated right. um, when the you know the message comes that in fact it's not that we're trying to repair or reform the categories, but that there is this place that is beyond the categories that we will really have to relate to with all kinds of respect and curiosity and no authority. Mm -hmm. And that's um, another kind of complicated place that having a cushion to sit on, like having a practice, makes it much easier to actually relate to that. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that there's something about the, it's unwelcome to say that there are these categories and we're not trying to uh, um, sort of correct them. Yeah but to go to a place of awareness beyond them? Is that it? And, then, I guess and that the students don't like that? It sounds like uh, they're not sure if it's a cop-out, mm -hmm. or maybe it's apolitical, mm -hmm. or uh, maybe it's too um, laissez-faire. And I think that's also an interesting place where philosophy and maybe the views uh, within which we practice, take one form, but then what we need, you know, in Buddhism we say the skillful means that we need to engage society and to actually, you know, get the curb cuts to make that happen, feel more concrete. So mm -hmm. I think these are students who are interested in social justice, want to be activists, want pretty concrete terms mm -hmm. because that will arm them to go and make action happen. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of space of really unlearning in order to learn that uh, in order to have the most flexibility and kind of really good strategic thinking around very concrete social political action, that the view or the embodiment of the basic ideas around identity and gender might surprisingly be quite um, beyond categories and not so conceptual. And that, it sounds very paradoxical maybe in these words, but in the uh, experience, in our own experience, I think we actually can feel where the, the two come together. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of my friend who pushed her cousin into the into the uh, pit. Um, became a was a lesbian and a grandmother, and she would speak about how her grandchildren uh, and one of her one of her four children was also a lesbian. Um, uh, how the grandchildren recreated the most ordinary conventional sex roles, you know, being a princess, marrying a prince, and so on and so forth, and, and how interesting it was that regardless of the fact that there were all these um, queer uh, grandparents and parents, made no, made no difference to the kids, that all was a little bit like put to the side. It's very, very interesting kind of observation, I think, yeah. yeah. Sure. Absolutely. So we thought we would, we were going to talk a little bit, and we'd like to invite any uh, thoughts or comments, questions uh, within the group. Yeah, I was just thinking from watching the video, uh, it reminded me that I, for most of my life, I never really 
thought about disability because, you know, it didn't really affect me until my parents became very old. And I think of, you know, my parents were never, never, I mean, they were never officially disabled, but they, you know, they had vision problems, they had hearing problems, they had mobility problems, and, you know, we, if we had to go out, we have to think about which subway station is accessible and which one is not, mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, in a way, disability is, 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 is something that will affect all of us at some point. So it's kind of like temporal, you know. It may not be something that we think of it as permanent, but, you know, when, when I get old, I will not be able to, maybe, you know, I won't be able to see, I won't be able to hear, I won't mm -hmm. be, able to be able to walk or whatever, you know. All these things that we take for granted, you know. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I mean, in a way, we, we have gone through that, you know, when we were babies, but we, we kind of forget about it, you know. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it is interesting that somehow we like to forget our dependency or I was walking over here with a friend who had um, had a foot infection and uh, he'd been traveling and came back to the United States and and then from the antibiotic it seemed he got another some other kind of infection I didn't get the details of it but it was sort of infection and then another infection and I was thinking about this this idea that um, we actually, all the ways that we're, our viability when we are able-bodied is actually assisted and how we don't really want to think about that. And I think that was Sunara Taylor's you know, perspective that disability makes people uncomfortable because they face you know, this dependency which we had as children. And it was absolute for a while. And uh, gradually, only very gradually, very slowly, would grow out of, yeah. Thank you. Hi. Um, I get a little nervous when I yeah. talk in front of a lot of people, but mm -hmm. I find that there was a lot that resonated for me with, uh, I guess what really stood out was this sense of embodied awareness. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's been really a path of uncovering a lot of, you know, past, I guess, an extreme way of putting it as traumas that disconnected me from myself and being able to even feel feelings in the yes. beginning um, and slowly starting to, I guess, develop a practice of gentleness and curiosity and being able to hold space for things that came up in, you know, the course of the year, it started to really uncover with like feelings of rage and terror mm -hmm. that would slowly kind of, I guess, peel away and turn into anger and sadness. And in so doing, I only learned, I, I learned how to attune to myself because I think growing up, some of us don't get that gift um, mm -hmm. of attuning to yes. one's own needs. Yeah. And um, I know that for me, just hearing that person um, I forget her name, but she was on the video. She was recalling the story about the man who would swish and, and he got killed yeah. for that. Yes. And I was lucky enough to be, I guess, passable. Right. <laughs> Quote, unquote, lucky. I had to right. hide inside of myself mm -hmm. until I was right. 20 or 20 later. But for him, you know, to hear those stories constantly 
From the age of four, I knew I was gay, but I hid it. Mm -hmm. I cried myself awake, knowing that I was different, knowing that there was something, feeling like there was something wrong with me. And right. I feel like, as a gay man, I see that my community suffers a lot from this similar repression, suppression, and abuse in the yeah. bottom line. Um, I guess my question is, what can I do to, and if, if there's anything, I mean, I feel like first it starts with me and being able to attune and have self-compassion and being mindful and aware of everything, just watching that video open my eyes even further. Yes. But is there anything that I could do in helping, mm -hmm. I guess, bring our community to a level of healing? Because mm -hmm. I feel like the way it's coming out now is we're growing, but it's growing sideways in a lot of areas. And there's a lot of suffering still out there. So that's yes. my question. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's, thank you for sharing that. So there's, uh, I think a lot of people could resonate with your experience, you know, and uh, one thing I would like to say is the body does remember, you know, a lot we set aside of our thoughts, our memories, but the body registers and it's responding and reacting. And some of it could be early, even before we have speech, and some of it's later. It's just we don't want to think about it, but the body remembers in terms of tension, fear, anger, numbness, you know, uh, and so on. And that's, um, you know, a, 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 an outcome, really, of just what you're describing. And I think um, not only is the abuse the kind of gender policing coming from without, and it is, but it also comes from within, as you were saying, Yuna, um, that, um, you know, if you're the, on Broadway right now, there's a, a show, um, uh, what is it called? Um, the Boys in the Band. And it was written in 1968 when most of the, the gay men really were all subject to arrest if they were in a gay bar. And, and um, just being there was enough for arrest and could lead to complete uh, uh, ruin, really, for them. And so there, there's a, in the second act of the play, they're really nasty with each other. I mean, they're really like biting into one another in the, these very vicious ways sometimes. But you know, it made me think a little bit what it's like to live in a prison. And the prison may be an actual prison where there's a lot of cruelty and frustration among inmates, but it also could be an imprisonment that is from our minds and from our attitudes. And so that kind of abuse within people who identify eventually, it's a, whether they're gay or lesbian or transgendered or something else, that cruelty can be very much of a problem. And, um, and it's a lovely question you know, what can we do as a community? Um, and uh, one thing that I do here when I teach, which I, I come back to over and over again, is the practice, the Buddhist practice of loving kindness. And we are a community here. We're not like a large community. We're not like a queer community particularly, but we're made up of all kinds of individuals, uh, many of whom actually are queer. Um, and uh, 
And so that practice of loving kindness beginning with yourself and then moving out to the people you love, the people you like, the people you're neutral about, the people who annoy you, the people you aggravate you, and eventually to the people who maybe you see, you've seen as an enemy. So we can kind of grow that love. I think on a larger social level, I'm not so, quite so sure. Media, do you have some thoughts, Yuna, about that maybe? Can I? Well, of course there is, um, you know, a world of activity, but I, I guess the only thing I wanted to add to what you're saying mm -hmm. is that um, it does really help to sit with your own mind. And because interdependence is very real, I think what we do, even in our solitary practice, emanates, it just radiates out more than we sometimes can even imagine or dare to imagine. I think it just really does help. That said, of course, um, society is a very particular kind of relative reality and operates with a complex history. Today is Juneteenth. Um, all kinds of rules, some natural, some artificial. So I think the one thing I would say just is that it's good for us to all keep doing our jobs and all the kinds of activities and ways in which we show up for our world and engage that. And I think in my path here, um, I was somebody who went from thinking meditation is a way to give up on this mess a little bit. And interestingly enough, that's not really where the path takes you. It kind of brings you back in. Um, so to keep showing up and sharing your experience, it just helps a lot. You never know who's listening. You know, on retreat, sometimes the deer come to the tent. Like just, if interdependence is real, it's really real, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, we matter, you know, our lives matter, bodies matter. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that's it. Yeah. yeah, and our differences matter. I think recognizing the differences among ourselves, um, to be a person who does that and brings that to your office, for example, or um, any volunteer activities you do, or your friendships or your family, to be able to really recognize the integrity of that a person is different from you and to be curious and want to know their experience um, without changing them. I think that's actually transformative in my experience. So, thank you. Yes. Yeah, was there any, um, before we stop, is there anything you wanted to say in just in response to that or is that, uh, that okay? I didn't want to just cut you off there. Okay, thanks. Hello. Um, this is a response to what you were just saying, and kind of just this thing that happened last night. Um, <clears throat> my wife and I, 31 years together, she came in with five children. There are now eight grandchildren. The oldest grandchild, who's 23, uh, over whom there were homophobic issues when she was first born, no, we couldn't take her to the butterfly exhibit, et cetera. Now, so she came for dinner last night uh, to see her omas, um, grandmothers. And she was so proud because, and she's working now, she's 23, mm -hmm. and 
she said, guess what? My guy friend, which is, I didn't know the term, you know, I guess it's like, uh, you know, your, your guy friend, mm -hmm. um, uh, is he, he just came out. And guess what? I'm going to help him make a pride party before the parade. And Leah and I were just like, that's great. <laughs> so just being yourself over many, many years right. and dealing with all the hurt and the pain in the places where it's safe to do that, not necessarily with the people who, you know, sparked it, because we, you know, we don't, we didn't, you know, we didn't react to it. Mm -hmm. We just kept going back, mm -hmm. always, always. And I, it's just astounding that she is so proud. And she said, and, and I told him, my grandmother is a lesbian. <laughs> so it's just the, uh, kind of the opposite right. Of, right. of the story that yeah. you were telling. So I just wanted to register yeah. a little optimism. Great. Thank you. Thank you. No, I, I've heard before, and I've, and you, mainly you mentioned um, working with your body and the emotions in your body. Yes. I have great difficulty with that. Mm -hmm. um, I was hoping you could offer some words of wisdom. Sure. Some more words of wisdom. Sure. Is it that it's hard to to identify sensations of any feeling? Right. So one of the things. Impossible. That it's impossible. Okay. Well, um, not, not not totally impossible. I'm a, I do have some, but when I'm sitting, when I'm sitting, I can't say that the thoughts that I, that I, you know, touch and let go or mm -hmm. go, reflect in my. I can't use my body to say, okay, that's. Yeah. Right. Um, well, the first thought I would have in meditation is that. Um, a practice like the four immeasurables, which is on loving kindness, compassion, joy, uh, what's called equanimity. Each of those can lead to some feeling, particularly when you do it for someone you love or someone you hate. You know? And once you get into there, probably you'll feel something. It might be you fall asleep, right? Well, you, but that's an interesting thing to fall asleep when you're meditating on something you know, that's provocative. So what you might attend to at that point is maybe a feeling of numbness, feeling disconnected, feeling unrelated, feeling a bit airy. That's a really good thing to recognize. And that's actually part of your meditation. And uh, so if we think about feeling as going, including painful ones and pleasant ones and neutral ones, which is not how we ordinarily think of it, right? We could be curious about the neutral ones, the flat ones, the disconnected ones, the detached ones. Right. Uh, you know? That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then any guided meditation that offers, for example, in the four immeasurables where you do loving kindness for someone you love easily, you know, someone, you do it for yourself. Can you feel something you felt yourself? And you might say, ah, oh, I don't feel anything for myself. So you can just take note, but maybe you can do it for a daughter. Maybe you can do it for a grandparent, maybe for a puppy. You start there. And then you notice what happens in your heart center. What happens to your breathing? 
you know? And that's, there's the sensation. So it's not so much an end as a beginning, really. Yeah? Thank you. Yeah, sure. I just thought I'd add that sometimes we don't always recognize that the way the body knows its feelings might be a little different from how our mind knows feelings. And the body can only feel what it actually feels. And I have a whole kind of range of things under the category of not feeling. Um, there's numb, there's also indifferent, there's kind of tired, there's I'm aware there's stuff I don't want to think about now, so I'll be in a kind of hum. And there's like a kind of a humming state. There's like meh. There's like so much, all of those are actually a lot of feelings. And because our personality styles are so different, um, you know, some of us live in different registers of feelings. So, as I've practiced, I've actually uncovered a whole range of this kind of like bland category. Um, so I just wonder if it might be worth trying to just like really take literally the instruction to feel what you're feeling and to let that be the feeling. And once we do that, sometimes things change, um, and sometimes things don't. But for me, I had a lot of ideas about what would be an appropriate feeling or what feelings are. And um, once we get curious about what the body can do, it's possible that we don't just learn to have feelings so much as we learn to see what is already there and maybe wasn't um, quite being seen, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I intellectualize my feelings, so I have feelings. I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm annoyed, I'm happy. But you guys were talking about experiencing it in your body, and that's the, the, the break that I need to work on, I guess. Yes. The, the, the split. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Hi. Hi there. Um, yeah, I just want to say that um, I find very interesting the concept of the queer mm -hmm. in the sense that it's not totally related with, uh, with uh, being gay as a community or uh, it, I mean, coming back to the idea of the, um, yeah, I, I found very powerful the, the, this concept of, uh, or this exploration of privilege um, by Angel Kyoto uh, Williams. And so I think that in, in, the, in this way, queer, the concept of queer can, you know, fight against this uh, privilege, the notion of privilege in a way. Yes. But on the other hand, the, the sexuality uh, is, not, uh, is not separated with, uh, with the idea of privilege. So uh, I, I'm not sure if I'm expressing it <laughs> clearly enough, but what I mean is uh, 
can you differentiate between the idea of the queer and the idea of the uh, sexuality and what is the, the potential for the for the queer as a concept not just linked to sexuality but also linked to a, an idea of the body uh, mm -hmm. in general yes sure um, I have a thought some thoughts about that and if we think about the the sort of traditional gender binaries what because they're they were assumed to be natural and self-existing, like sort of the very basis, the sort of the kind of very basic structure of things, you know, and anyone who didn't see that was kind of crazy, right? There was a um, lack of awareness, I think, about the privilege, for example, that men, like the human race was called, we would refer to the, the human race as man, or, um, that generally the, um, how would you put it, the uh, uh, rule is typically the male. And that has, it's been true legally in terms of votes. I think in, I just heard the other day in Switzerland, got, the women got the vote in like 1963 or something, you know, um, with owning property traditionally. Um, many legal law, many domestic laws. So there's a long tradition of favoring men. And, and certainly as teachers, when we have men and women together, uh, usually we notice that the men jump in and usually the women don't. <laughs> um, and, and it's a common thing. Would you say that you see that? Maybe as a woman teacher, maybe you see that less than I do as a man teacher? I don't know. I think I see that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, it's in us, really, and we do it, we st and we don't really think about it. I think, for me, the beauty of the queer concept is that it's, it says that we're not quite this or that. This is my understanding. It, that we're actually a little confusing. Like, I could love Judith Butler, but I'm queer. I'm a gay man. <laughs> you know, I could... Do it, <laughs> you know? and like so. What is that? How gay am I actually? How homosexual am I truly? And I could sometimes with other women. So, so what? What? what, what so that's kind of queer. That's sort of being a queer homosexual, right? Because it's not quite fitting into the categories of what's expected, and. I think that that really works against the notion of entitlement and privilege that some group, whether it's white or male or something else, because a lot of people can play this game, not just white men, and do play this game uh, in other settings, right? Um, that that it, I think it undermines that privilege and opens things up. But it doesn't mean that power doesn't come to play. It, do, it will and does. It comes back. But, um, and I think that's what your point was in a certain way, was how power is used negatively even in, in, within uh, gay, gay and lesbian communities, not to mention heterosexual ones. Right? So it, it keeps coming back, but I think what we develop is more a bit of an awareness of it. You know, a kind of awareness that Oh, here we are again. Here I am in my own thoughts. Here are my preconceptions, you know. And we don't necessarily blame the other, attack the other so much as we sort of 
it's helpful first to begin with taking our own inventory of our own preconceptions, our own prejudices, uh, and that's a very nice place to begin. And then when we approach others about theirs, there's a kind of a, maybe a hum humility and a, and a kindness actually to it potentially, rather than, you know, shame on you, you know. So, yeah, is that yeah. useful at all? Yeah, yes, totally. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. And a lot of heterosexual women and men can be queer too. You know, they, their tastes and sexuality don't quite fit in. They're not, uh, what's the word, um, sort of standardized. <laughs> They're not normal for that. And maybe that's the case once in a blue moon. Maybe it's a regular part of their, of their, their sexual repertoire. Um, and so this notion of queer begins to get broader and broader. It could lose its meaning, but it's a, I think it goes back to the notion of gender and sexuality as performative. It's performative for all, not for just, you know, one group. Yeah, thank you. Uh, coming back to the video a little bit, I, I think um, one of the reasons that I, I love the video is because uh, like the cuts in the sidewalk is, is not something that you really think about if, if that's not a challenge in your life. Um, but for somebody that is disabled, you know, it must be infuriating every time you come to an intersection and there's no cut, just because like people are just completely unaware that this is a, this is a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think like that's why I love meditation so much because it kind of creates like emotional on ramps to our lives, mm -hmm. uh, like spiritual and, and psychological on ramps. Um, you know, spaces mm -hmm. like this. I, I think um, you know a, a lot of people walk around uh, their daily lives and, and don't have these types of on ramps to these types of conversations. So. Mm -hmm. Um, just wanted to say thank you to, to you guys for, for creating this space. Well, thank, thank you very much, yeah. That's a really cool phrase, actually. Yeah. The emotional yeah. on-ramp in mm -hmm. meditation. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the part of the video where they were talking about physical access is necessary in order to actually feel you're a part of the human race, you know? And, um, it's such a great connection that until we can really physically get, like, through our bodies, get into who we are, it's hard for us to really feel that we accept ourselves and that we, we get to be here on Earth. Um, anyway, great phrase. Yeah. And okay. I was going to also offer another phrase on privilege. Since privilege so often functions by not being very few privileged people go around thinking I'm privileged. That's not how it works, right? Um, and Jack Halberstam wrote a book called The Queer Art of Failure. And it was it's really intriguing because, you know, a part of the awareness and intention that um, often comes asked or even unbidden um, to people who don't have privilege that one can work with that in all different kind of ways and even really appreciate a kind of art of failure. Like that you could really move away from the norm. Um, mm -hmm. Lovely, yeah. I was debating whether to say anything. Often, I often speak up in large groups. I don't mm -hmm. feel inhibited about that. I think when it comes to my own sexuality, I have more anxiety around that, and I feel as though there's a quality emotionally 
that just takes me deeper and makes me much more vulnerable. So I was hesitating to necessarily speak, but I feel um, good about getting the mic. Mm -hmm. But I really want to thank both of you so much for the, what you opened up for me in, in terms of all of this. I just feel like something very deep, which is perhaps a result of a lifetime of work on emotions, but also having a meditation practice enables me to go deeper. But with this particular subject of my own sexuality here right now with your presentation was just so enormously helpful. I, um, I was introduced to sexuality by my mother who was seductive, not directly to me, but I experienced it, but then she was assaultive. So I always associated my sexual feelings with tremendous anxiety and it was traumatic and I've had to work with that. Right. And I wound up not really trusting men unless I got to know them and saw that they were gentle. So my default with men is watch out and be very careful. Mm -hmm. And um, I've often been uh, much more, my default with gay men is that their range of emotionality and expressiveness is much greater than straight men. So that's been maybe a stereotype, but it's also been my experience. But in my relationship to women, to be able, the, the blockage because of social construction, mm -hmm. to be able to relate to women has been something I've been struggling with and trying to open up to. And I just felt something open up very widely and deeply uh, during this discussion. So I just wanted to take the moment just to express myself and uh, to thank you for that. It was really a nice moment uh, tonight. Yeah, thank you very much for saying that and sharing it. Um, do you want to say anything? Yeah. There's a um, lovely, sort of an interesting paper by uh, Judith Butler. Um, I can't remember exactly, she has a way with words, as you could see. Um, and it's a, I think it's a, something like, um, Mel melancholy, gender, grief, or dysphoria, or mourning, something like that. Mourning and melancholia, or sort of taking, it's riffing off of a paper by Freud called Mourning and Melancholia. So it's something about uh, gender. And she takes this interesting position, which I don't know really as a psychologist that it's true, but it's very interesting and provocative. And that is that we, as, as very young people, we learn to um, more, we have to grieve the, uh, we believe we're maybe an indeterminate sex, or perhaps we believe we are the opposite sex, and that we actually, at some point when we are sort of poured into the, uh, maybe the role of boy or girl, and we've kind of adapted it, there's a deep loss, and that that actually has to be grieved. Um, and so I think it's a very fascinating, you know, paper and one that's gotten a lot of attention and, I, and idea, you know. So your, your, your comments made me think a little bit about that somehow to remember what it's like to grieve, you know, for, for girls their boyness and for boys their girlness. Uh, I'm not sure what it would, how a, a, a person who's really non-gender conforming, a trans person, might experience that paper or those ideas, uh, how one would kind of uh, uh, sort of engage the, that. But um, I, I found that a very evocative idea, you know, and something, and reading it, something, how it moves something in me. Yeah, thank you.
comment on that idea. I think that surpasses gender and that's just the human condition. It's, it's I think, the spirit becoming a part of the body. And I, as I was doing this work, it was, you know, exploring like my sexual chakras and see, finding what healthy sexuality is and what intimacy feels like. And through it, I realized that the body, it, the spirit is unconditional. It's loving, it's unconditional love, it's light, it's, 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 it's God. Um, but pieces of it, because we, but as, we be, as for me, my human experience with, you know, I develop these notions, these sufferings, these obstacles that cause me to kind of become split from my spirit. And when I meditate and have this practice and go back to this vessel of unconditional love and replenish myself, I can be as close as, as close to that, you know, like as close to God as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so with my practice of embodied awareness, I kind of, dematerialize what splits me from my spirit. Mm -hmm. But I also find that in order to work, walk on earth, I need to be attuned to what my needs are. Um, and so I find that it's really interesting because there was something about um, coming back to what I need to do is truly just be present. Mm -hmm. and, and by continuing to be present with myself and unfolding these layers of disillusionment or pre preconceived notions of what it means mm -hmm. and truly get to the core of what it means to love myself unconditionally, mm -hmm. I can really be present and attuned to others in ways. And I don't know, I think that's the way I can make a difference. Mm -hmm. well, thank you, that's a very, <coughs> a, a very profound way of talking about sometimes people refer to part of their mind, that openness, that vast awareness, or their faith in God for some people as infinite, and like the ordinary things that we do as being sort of the finite or the conditional, and to be able to connect that big open experience of love or however you experience it, the words that work for you, with the immediacy of this body, this moment, you know. Uh, this thing that experience that, that these senses right now very profound practice and I think a very kind of a, something um, you know I certainly try to uh, try to kind of steer myself towards in my own life yeah, or try to recognize or find yeah thank you hi thank you so much it's so refreshing to hear Judith Butler spoken about at a meditation center. It's like blowing my mind. Um, something that came up for me watching that video was um, basic human needs, um, a phrase that is kind of crazily new to me, um, reminding me of basic human goodness. Mm -hmm. um, and also that sort of uh, mind and body connection that the video was talking about reminds me also so much of of the Shambhala meditation, of, of that being, as we've discussed tonight, a path towards um, some peace and serenity maybe, or a deeper understanding at, at best of yourself and of society. And I think, um, you know, something that I have experienced um, dealing with interdependence is um, a lot of chaos, and the chaos of the mind as I sit for long periods, but also the chaos of navigating a world where interdependence particularly in this city, is very complex and um, sometimes very difficult to navigate. And I sort of wonder, um, I don't know, I, maybe I'm very sensitive to it, and I sort of wonder um, 
what Buddhism might say about that. You know, is it just to sort of always come back to yourself mm -hmm. um, and sense, you know, your, you continue to come back to the practice? Um, is it also something about coming back to the community? Um, yeah, I don't know. Thank you. Do you want to take that? Um, yeah, definitely coming back to the community. Um, it's interesting, you know, a path, unlike a theory, I guess, has stages, and the stages are not abstractly outlined, but really only take shape based on your own experience. So although we might begin the practice in a very individual context, and our gaze is narrowed, and we really work with our individual spot that we're sitting on, the essence of the practice, that only works because of interdependence. And whether or not we're aware of a larger field, we are actually, we were always a part of that larger field of, um, of interaction, connection, dynamic movement among bodies. So we say, my body and I will take my posture, but in fact, kind of like what you were saying, we're already participating in something larger. And, you know, to begin um, with a simple place, just this entire place where we're sitting is already um, designed with all kinds of sense of a social vision. So this practice is really uh, offered as a lay practice. We're not trying to be monastics and we're not hermits, which are two other valid historical and contemporary modes to engage in. But the social dimension of how we're practicing here, and that's why we have these conversations and we celebrate gay pride together, it's because of that social vision. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the coming back to community is an important part of coming back to the body or maybe using the breath as a support. But there's also that quality of letting go, which is radiating and expansive. So we do go out with our breath as much as we come back to our breath. So I think the tools are all there. And it's, it's great that you see that. I think that was our last question, so we can move on to the next stage of some social gathering. All right, all right. So maybe we'll meet you outside. All right, very good. Maybe we can. Thank you, everyone, very much. Maybe we could end with a bow, just to kind of acknowledge that kind of basic decency and uh, integrity and kindness in each of us that we all share equally. Thank you, Bill and Yuna. And thank you all so much for listening. Visit our website, ny.shambhala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, our weekly Dharma gathering is every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. You can hear these talks live and in person, meet your fellow meditators, even in times of great difficulty and uncertainty. It's good to be with some other meditators on the path. Okay? Later. <laughs>